Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Oh my God, I think my heart's going to explode. We saw the cutest, the cutest, ah, the cutest thing happened. Yes, I did make a TikTok about this, but if you... (laughs) If you're one of the, the people not on TikTok, which I do not blame you, um, <laughs> then this story has to be retold. Haggis is a superhero. He is. He saved Kat's life. This was <laughs> an amazing thing to witness. We were puppy sitting Champ. You've heard us talk about Champ before. Champ is a, an older, large, bumbling, lovable Labrador. He's He's got to be at least 100 pounds. He's a big blockhead. I would say he's between 90 and 100, yeah. Yeah. We had one of those pig's ear uh, dog treats somebody had given us. And so Cat tries to uh, take it out of his mouth and put it away. And Champ wasn't having it. No, he did not listen. He would not give it up. And he growled at me. And Haggis jumped to full attention ran toward this 100-pound dog, all 11 pounds of haggis, <laughs> and started barking at him. <laughs> he turned around, dropped the pig's ear, and walked away. <laughs> haggis is such a hero. Yep. Every chance he gets, JG will mention to Haggis how proud he is that he saved Mama's life. <laughs> he did. So. It was the cutest thing it ever. It really was. He's no, just this little peanut. One-tenth the size of this big boy. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, Champ has never been no. a problem. He's a sweet boy. It's just pig's ears. Pig's ears will do that. Yeah, pig's ears excite the boy. <laughs> So both the boys are settled down. There are no pig's ears to uh, distract them. (laughs) I get to go first. Let me just a sip of iced tea, please. Yeah, probably you should ask Haggis permission also. Is it okay, Haggis? Is it all right if I monopolize your mama for a minute or two? Okay. You know, it's easy... To fall in love. And also to equate air pollution with modern times. 
um, especially industrial pollution, dating back to October 1948 in Pennsylvania. In October of that year, Denora, Pennsylvania was completely covered in what was described as a lethal haze. Oh. According to EPA.gov, over five days, nearly half of the town's 14,000 residents experienced respiratory or cardiovascular problems. It wow. was difficult for them to breathe. And the death toll rose to 40 people. Disturbing photos show Denora's streets hidden under a thick blanket of gray smog. What had happened is it was kind of like a perfect storm, no pun intended. A warm air pocket had passed above the town and trapped the cooler air below. It sealed in the pollutants. The area was no stranger to pollution to begin with because they had steel and zinc smelters that uh, had long plagued the town with dirty air. So that's really interesting because when I think of pollution back in the day, uh, the days of yore, you mm. might say, mm -hmm. I think of like litter and that kind of thing, you know, dead bodies just everywhere. Right. Um, but I don't think of air pollution. <laughs> that's interesting. Like I think of gross rivers you know, that you can walk across or that would light sure. on fire. Right. Um, that was a problem. Air pollution, not so much. I believe it was Lake Erie that caught on fire because of the high contaminate levels of pollution and combustible materials within the, uh, the lake. Well, major strides, of course, have been made. In 1970, Congress passed the Clear Air Act Amendment, which uh, led to the establishment of the nation's uh, air quality standards. So things, even though they're not perfect, they're, they're getting better. Major strides have been made to improve the air quality, but many complex scientific questions still remain that call for innovative and novel research. And we're not talking about just regulation. Sometimes technical innovation is the answer, but we are going to go back even further in history. Even to, more Yori? Even more Yori. We're going to go back to the late 1800s. And today we're going to talk about the Great Horse Manure Crisis of 1894. <laughs> the struggle was real. Let's start in the 1860s. At this time, the quickest, most popular way to get around New York City was in a horse-drawn streetcar. The, uh, the streetcars, the horses, they would pull the trolleys along iron tracks. Mm -hmm. and that, of course, was a much smoother ride than the horse-drawn omnibuses that they were quickly replacing. I came across this great article in The New Yorker. It's called Hosed. Uh, in it, <laughs> it talks about the sheer numbers that New Yorkers had to deal with. During the 1860s, New Yorkers made some 35 million horse car trips a year at the start of the decade. Ten years later, by 1870, that figure had tripled. Wow. So they needed a lot of horse cars, and consequently they needed a, needed a lot of horses. The standard horse car would seat up to about 20 people. It was drawn by a pair of horses. The streetcars ran 16 hours a day, each horse could only work four-hour shifts, so operating one single horse car required at least eight animals. If the route ran uphill, they would need even more horses because they would, they would put them on shorter shifts. It was sure. a more grueling task. Or if the weather was hot, they would need still more horses. Horses, of course, <laughs> were also <laughs> used to transport materials and goods around the city. Sure. And the amount of freight arriving 
in New York during this time period had increased so dramatically because, because of railroad terminals. So the number of horses that they needed to distribute the goods to local streets grew immensely. It's said that by 1880, there were about 150,000 horses living in New York City. That's not spread out over all the boroughs and stuff, just in New York City. And there were probably a lot more. One estimate uh, is closer to 200,000 horses wow. just in the city in the 1880s. Each horse relieved itself, on average, 22 pounds of manure a day. A day? And... Well, mares do eat oats. And does eat oats. Yeah. Little lambs eat ivy. Yeah, so you don't have to worry about the oats with them. No. So they're pooping out 22 pounds of manure a day Mm -hmm. and a bucket load of urine. So this means that the city production of horse manure was at least 50 tons a month. And in addition to the mountains of horse waste, you could add in rotting horse carcasses as well, too. Because, yeah, because the horses they were worked really hard. And their life expectancy was about three years. These were large animals, of course, and when they died, they were often just left in place. They didn't have the machinery or equipment to remove carcasses that size. So often they would just wait until it had decomposed to the point where they could remove it in pieces. Oh my um, in fact, there are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses and mountains of poo. It was just the way it was. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. When I was a kid, we didn't have the internet. We had dead horses and piles of horse manure to play on. This is awful. A guy named George Waring Jr. served as New York's cleaning commissioner, and he described Manhattan as, quote, stinking with the emanations of putrefying organic matter. I remember banana peels were a big problem, too. That was another episode I did. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that was a little bit later. I don't I don't even like if we go on vacation, I won't even go in a horse drawn carriage. I think it's romantic. I think it's beautiful. But I can't get over the idea. Like, what's that horse's life like? What are you doing? We were at uh, Disney Mm. and uh, they had the handsome cab that you could hire. Cat hired the handsome cab just to give the horse a break. Well, I think that it's important. Like four hundred dollars for a 10 minute rest for the horse. (laughs) Rest. A journalist of the time wrote that the streets of Manhattan were quite literally carpeted with a, quote, warm brown matting smelling to heaven. Now, in the early part of the 1800s, it wasn't a problem, mostly because there were still farmers surrounding the city relatively close by that were happy to take the horse manure. Yes, they got it. They actually would pay the city. They would buy the horse manure and, and, of course, use it for fertilizer. But by the time we reached the 1880s and 1890s, the market was so glutted with uh, stable owners that they had to pay people to remove the horse manure. And it just accumulated over time, mostly in vacant lots. They would just pile it up in vacant lots. It's kind of like our late winter snow. Snow removal. Yes. (laughs) I was thinking the exact same thing. If you go to a a large parking lot in Maine or, you know, those of you who live in northern climates, the snow banks will be as high as the telephone poles in many cases, but it would be snow, not horse poop. Right. But still, I hate snow. Just be glad you're not shoveling horse poop. (laughs) 
Now, of course, these vacant lots, brimming with horse crap, um, were an ideal breeding ground for flies. Mm. By the 1890s, the manure crisis seemed virtually impossible to overcome. And New York wasn't the only place having the issue. It was always worldwide, major cities especially. London was struggling. In 1894, the Times of London wrote an article about the crisis, and their prediction was that by the 1950s, every street in the city of London and in New York would be buried under nine feet of manure. (laughs) And this was not an exaggeration. This was based on math. (laughs) This... (laughs) They figured out how many horses, how many pounds. We don't have that much room for it. It's just going to pile up. Now, by this time, they did have an understanding that disease could be transmitted by flies. And they recognized that a public health crisis was inevitable. Right. So in 1898, they assembled the very first international urban planning conference. And discussion was dominated by the manure crisis. It was a poop committee. It was a poop committee. Got it. But they just couldn't come up with any viable solutions. They couldn't imagine uh, cities working without horses. You needed horses to drive industry. So the delegates broke up their meeting, even though it had been scheduled for a week and a half, three days, and they said, now we give up. The overall opinion was, quote, oh, well, something will come up. No. Yeah, that's that was in the official. Well, if they had these big lots like these these places where the the poop was being piled Mm -hmm. why not grow food there why not build gardens that you can then use the manure in rather than just piles of poo it would be somewhat functional or build buildings for the poo in the meantime (laughs) until you can you know rotate the poo i think yes you know uh horse manure is great for growing crops but i think you need some dirt too. Well, I mean, yes. And there just wasn't enough to go around because it was all covered in mountains of horse poop. Miraculously, the crisis passed. Again, this was not brought about by regulation or any government policies. It was um, because of technological innovation. Electricity became more widely available. And of course, the development of the internal combustion engine. Mm. Uh, These innovations led to the development of different ways to move people and goods, uh, not not having to use horses. (laughs) According to Tradesmith Daily, in October of 1908, Henry Ford introduced the Model T. It quickly became America's car. Ford uh, didn't invent the auto. He didn't invent the assembly line, but he was the first to put those two concepts together, and he created the very first mass-manufactured automobile. Because he could control the pricing, he could sell it at a price point that most Americans were able to afford. This slowly put city horses out of business as they disappeared from the streets. Their manure and carcasses did as well. In New York City, cars outnumbered horses... By 1912, this happened quickly. Wow. And in 1917, the city's very last horse-drawn streetcar made its final run. Very quickly, the streets began to clear, and the piles of manure slowly disappeared. So what did the great horse manure crisis of 1894 teach us? Experts say to expect the unexpected, particularly regarding technology. Nobody saw that coming. They thought, we're fucked. (laughs) (laughs) And then along comes out of nowhere, out of left field, 
electricity in, in automobiles just completely in a very short amount of time, mm. completely changing the face of how one would live and do business in major cities. History does dictate that technology will advance in a way unexpectedly solving issues that we may be experiencing right now. For example, fossil fuels. This is probably something big oil companies don't want to hear. But then again, if you were the heir to a buggy whip fortune in 1908, Henry Ford was probably the most evil person in the world. Right. Where are all the anvils? So... Let's be optimistic. Um, there's incredible technology that come our way at some point and change the mm. paradigm in ways that we don't even understand yet. I was watching something the other day about a, like a high school kid made this contraption that floats on the the water surface and like eats garbage. And it just goes around. It's kind of like self-propelling mm. and... And nom, 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 the garbage. The idea is that we can start to clean up the Great Pacific sure. Garbage Patch. Sure. Um, which really shocking that we haven't done a an episode on the friggin' garbage patch. But anyway, this amazing contraption is just eating up the garbage. Now, when you say eat, you mean collecting it or is it somehow dissolving it? A di- little bit of both. Digesting it? Is it is it biological? I don't. It's not biological. I don't remember how, but it's somehow taking care of it because it's not just collecting the garbage to take it elsewhere. It's like disposing of it. Wow. And I don't know how. Don't ask me. I say I read an article, but I skimmed the article. Let's be honest. <laughs> okay. Well, you got past the headline, so <laughs> that's more than a lot of people. So that's the great horse manure crisis of 1894. Uh, my information came from the New Yorker, epa.org, Tradesmith Daily. That is amazing. And now, that thing in the middle. Nikolai Paganini was a violinist, but not just any violinist. He was probably the greatest violinist ever. In fact, he was so good many people believed he was the son of the devil. He, of course, denied that, but people wouldn't believe him. So, he had to publicly reveal letters written to him by his mother to prove that he actually had a human parent. Warning, repeated use of this podcast may cause enlightenment, queasiness, and or fits of laughter. Discontinue use if rash develops. But send us a photo first. We're into some weird shit around here. This is The Box of Oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, 
it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Hey, Nikki sent us this uh, private message. Hey, you lovely people. Greetings from New Zealand. Started listening to your show recently, and I am in love. I work in a nursery growing trees, so I listen to a lot of podcasts. You guys have me laughing out loud numerous times a day, getting curious looks from my coworkers. Mm. Wanted to share a story that related to that thing in the middle from one of your early shows. The weird, creepy shit kids say. Yeah. 
So when my little boy was about five, we got a new kitten and he was besotted. (laughs) I love that word. Uh, He was playing with her on the floor and he says, oh my God, she's so cute. I want to cut her face off and stick it on mine. Wow. I get it. So, yep, just wanted to share. Our cat stayed intact and has now had kittens of her own. So all is well. Any hoozle, thank you, beautiful people. So happy. I got you in my ears all day. Nikki, that's cute aggressiveness, isn't that's, it? Yeah. I mean, I get that. That makes perfect sense. It's like, uh, it, it's a documented phenomena. D-D-D-D-D. Banana. D-D-D-D. Some people like have too much overload, like cuteness overload, and they don't know what to do with that mm-hmm. excess feeling. Mm-hmm. And it comes out as aggression. And it's it's weird. Well, but it, I get it. I can't tell you how many times Cat will be holding one of the dogs and just squeezing the dog, not to the point where the dog's in any danger, but then she'll look at me and say, I want to bite through his ear with my eye teeth. Yeah. And then you describe to me in great detail what that would be like. Mm-hmm. You could feel the tooth. Pierce the skin pier- and kind of pop, pop through pop it. Pop right through. Yeah. And- I want to want to bite their skin. <laughs> I want to bite it. I don't know. I don't know why. I, I mean, the same thing with you. There are some times where I look at you and you're sleeping and you're so peaceful and I just want to smash your face. <laughs> we have a complex relationship. <laughs> I just love you so much. <laughs> well, my love, what you got for me? What, what you, what, what you, what you got for me? What, 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 what you got for me? There we go. Okay. Oh, you turned me down. Yeah. <clears throat> Rheumatoid arthritis. That sounded a little aggressive. Sorry. Rheumatoid arthritis, also known as RA, is an autoimmune disorder that causes chronic inflammation of joints. It's very uncomfortable. Uh, it tends to begin slowly with minor symptoms that kind of come and go, and it progresses over a period of time. Symptoms of this chronic condition do vary from person to person, and they can change from day to day. However, flare-ups, which is when you're having symptoms, can be very uncomfortable. Movement is uncomfortable. Clenching is uncomfortable. Bending. All the things that people do, like on the daily, it's uncomfortable. And you can see why that wouldn't be pleasant or something that someone wanted to live with. Obviously, we want a cure. Or at least some whiskey. An Ayurvedic medical text from the year 123, which is very pleasing to me, uh, refers to a disease characterized by swollen, painful joints, occasional fever, and in all likelihood, this was a description of RA. You don't even have your harness on. How are you finding ways to make your harness make noise? The physician of Roman Emperor Claudius made observations that might lead us to believe that he suffered from RA. In 1852, Sir Alfred Garrod renamed the condition rheumatoid arthritis and defined it as a separate condition from osteoarthritis. Mm -hmm. So that's when it kind of started to become a little bit better understood. Okay, this is this, that's that, and that's how. Okay. So in the olden days, once again, 
The days of your... The your days. Treatments for rheumatoid arthritis included bloodletting and leaching. Plant-based treatments like willow bark were used. In the Far East, they developed practices of acupuncture and acupressure, and uh, cupping were used, mm. the, the use mm -hmm. of heat especially. I never really understood the idea of bleeding people to make them better. I don't really either. I mean, I, I understand that they thought that bad blood was a thing. Some bad blood in there. But obviously not all of it's bad. How do you know which blood is the bad blood when well, you're just cutting somebody open and letting them bleed out? I don't know. My son isn't feeling very well. Let's take him to the barber and bleed him out. That'll help. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the thought process back in the days of yore. Right. Well, uh, we very often end up in the same time period with our stories. And that's, again, what's happened today. We're talking about the late 1800s. And you know how mm. during that time period, people were always looking for a new cure. It became a big problem because all kinds of things were being sold and uh, prescribed, quote unquote, quote, as being the next cure, when really they didn't have any curative properties at all. But lots of opium. Lots of opium. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Pretty much all medicine had opium in it. <laughs> well, I want to tell you about one of the cures that was available in the late 1800s. Oh, I love this. To cure RA. Sitting inside a rotting whale carcass. <laughs> now, according to an 1896 story published in the New York Times, the whale cure was popularized after a gentleman of questionable habits, but grievously afflicted with rheumatoidism, noticed a whale carcass on the beach. A jokester, he decided to jump right in. Some people later said that he was drunk. <laughs> His friends were horrified, but, quote, the heat and the smell were too great for them to rescue their ally. So they waited around for him to come out. How long did that take? Yeah, I mean, it was a while. Really? It was a few hours. No. Um, one source claims that the first man to try the whale cure stumbled upon it accidentally after falling into the carcass mm. drunk. He <laughs> supposedly became stuck and emerged free of his rheumatoidism and very sober a few hours later. Another attributes the first case to a well-known businessman who approached a prominent local whaling family, and he wanted to just try it out. He'd heard that heat worked, and he thought, where can I find heat? Inside a rotting whale. Hmm. Sure. I would have said fire, but whatever. Huh. Weird. So he convinced the the whaling guy to allow him to try this out when next they brought a whale to shore. So after spending a day inside the oily, bloody cavern of the whale, the man emerged allegedly cured. This has to be like a placebo <laughs> kind of thing. So when a whale is killed and towed ashore and the carcass retains a little warmth, this is how it, how it works. A hole is cut through one side of the whale's body, sufficiently large to admit the patient. The lower part of whose body, from the feet to the loins, should sink into the whale's intestines, oh, no. leaving the head, of course, oh. outside the aperture. The latter is closed up as tightly as possible, 
Otherwise, the patient would not be able to breathe through the volumes of anatomical gases, which would escape from every opening left uncovered. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, decomp creates gases and... Yeah. Yeah. That came from The Whale Cure for Rheumatism in Australia, published by The Graphic, May of 1902. Now, this comes from the Smithsonian Magazine. The man, after having been submerged in the whale carcass, the rheumatism from which he had been suffering for years had entirely disappeared. And after that, the town of Eden, Australia, became a sort of dead whale equivalent to Turkish baths. <laughs> so, so it was like... Surgical tourism for the day. Sure, let's yeah, go yeah. To, let's go there, and uh, they, they've got all the best dead whales. So preferably, in order for the cure to work most effectively, the patient was expected to remain within the whale carcass at intervals for 20 to 30 hours. Oh, my God. But they got to get out for a little bit. Well, I think they weren't expected to, like, relieve themselves inside the whale. Mm. So Yeah, yeah, that'd be gross. Right. <laughs> right? Ew. Yeah. Now, do they get in naked, I wonder? Because if you're wearing clothes, you're throwing those away. Yeah, I don't think they got naked. Um, hmm. All the illustrations that I saw, yes, I will be sharing, um, show people dressed in normal garb. Okay. All right. Including ladies in, like, dresses with lace and shit. It's very strange. Okay. <laughs> so, a story of the incident was published by the Paul Mall Gazette entitled A New Cure for Rheumatism, on March 7, 1896. It said, A gentleman had been walking along the beach with friends when he spotted a whale, which was already cut open, and appeared to our hilarious friend a tempting morsel of flesh. So, version of the story is that this guy was just interested in, in having a little nibble on the rotting carcass mm. and somehow slipped within. Oops. His friends, horrified by the heat and smell, left him inside for several hours until he emerged devoid of rheumatism and sober. The curator of the Australian National Maritime Museum exhibit, Michelle Linder, told the Sydney Morning Herald that it was unlikely to have been, quote, a really popular thing to do. <laughs> I don't know, she said, if there was scientific evidence per se to support the practice. But there was hearsay at the time that people were feeling better after being inside the whale. Now, yes, the whale decomposing would have created heat. And, and they say that rheumatoid arthritis is relieved by heat. So there may have, in fact, been some short-term relief, but not something that you couldn't get from a hot towel. This is amazing. My thought is it's one of two things. One, it's a, it's like a placebo mm -hmm. effect. Or two, um, the guy that fell in initially was so embarrassed by the uh, turn of events mm -hmm. that he he claimed he did it so it cured his uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And so then other people would try it mm -hmm. and it didn't work. And they just lied about it because they didn't want to, you know, they thought they were, they were covered in whale carcass. Well, yeah, they were covered in whale carcass and they, they were afraid they were being punked. So it was believed that the heat and gases produced by the decomposing whale, as we said, would create a sweat box style environment, which would relieve rheumatic disorders. Again, though, this is a thing that you can accomplish in other ways. With a, with a hot towel. With a hot towel. It said 
that one of these treatments could relieve your RA for up to 12 months. Interesting. Mm. So, of course, bay whaling uh, meant that whalers would hunt the migrating whales on small boats. And then rather than handling the carcass while they were out to sea, they would drag them to shore, to, to which is why there was such a plethora of carcass to hang out in mm. and uh, lots of opportunities for visitors to Eden to try the famous whale cure. The first reference that I found of it was in 1896. And the last reference that I found of it was 1902. So I don't know that it only happened between those years, but it seems like the period in which people were taking part in this activity was a small one. It was it was a, a, a short-lived fad, mm. like um, fidget spinners. Yep. But it smelled a lot worse. Right. I love old folk medical remedies. Mm, yeah. Stuff like that intrigues me. Well, I get it. I get the idea that maybe you came across something and I found the I found this thing and it was right in front of us this whole time. And mm. I get that, you mm -hmm. know. I get being down at the stream mixing up some mustard seed sure. with cayenne and thinking, yes, this is it. Bye bye, AIDS. <laughs> you know, I <sighs> Yeah, no, I get it. And that struck a note with a lot of people. Um, when you told that story about how you used to do that, yeah. we got so many messages from people saying, oh my God, I did the same thing. <laughs> this is crazy. Mm. My great uncle, my grandmother's brother. Mama or? Mama. Okay. Back in the 30s. The plane guy? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uncle Donald, he had a plane. Uh, but before he had the plane, um, they, they were potato farmers. Right. The family still is. And in the 30s, he was walking along the top of a uh, potato house, mm -hmm. and he fell through the floor. <laughs> and he... I'm sorry, I have to interrupt. I never thought twice about the fact that it was called a potato house and how silly that is until yeah. just now. <laughs> like, we just take it for granted in northern Maine. Oh, it's a right. potato house. It's a barn. It's a friggin' barn. <laughs> anyway, he falls through and he, and he fractures his leg. And... He's the quintessential northern Maine rural kind of guy, you know, very self-sufficient. Old duff kind of. Yep, yep. And uh, so he's lying there with his brother. His brother Carl was with him. And he goes, Carl, get over here and set this leg for me. And so Carl came over and they snapped his leg back into position again. Mm -hmm. And... Carl says to Donald, you know, I, I better take you down to see the doctor. And he goes, I don't need a doctor. I just put a cow patty on it. Be good. And so he puts cow shit mm -hmm. on the open wound where the bone was sticking through moments prior. Sure. And it worked. At least until the gangrene set in. And then they had to take him to Boston and he lost his leg. Yeah. Yeah. Then he got his pilot's license. There were some things in between, but sure, sure. it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Anyway, what we're learning here today, among other things, is that uh, uh, don't put cow shit on, on an open wound. It seems like there's a real theme mm. throughout today's episode yep. that involves feces mm -hmm. and rotting carcass. Well, there's a good chance that that's going to be the case in any of our episodes. That's a valid point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. You're fascinating. You are. I love your face. You're gross. Ugh. You're so gross. Ugh. I hate you. Ugh. I can smash your face. <laughs> 
Really want to thank those of you who have joined us on Patreon. Uh, seen a real influx. Don't know what's going on, but I like it. I'm I'm thrilled, and I'm really excited that we have, in earnest, started plans for an upcoming not quite live show mm-hmm. from our basement or another room in our home, possibly a, an empty room in a nearby building. We haven't decided yet, but we are making a plan. Yes. In fact, we have a conference call in about 20 minutes on how to logistically do this. Yes. Um, so look forward to that. We'll give you uh, details as soon as we have them. And what was it you wanted to say before we uh, wrapped today? Oh, yeah. So the last time we were talking about my... Um, freak out about the chocolate chip cookie thing yeah and someone pointed out that the recipe may have called for an entire bag of chocolate chips and that never occurred to me i don't think i've ever made anything that called for an entire bag of chocolate chips i don't make double batches of things and maybe Mm -hmm. that's the case Mm -hmm. and if that's the case fine dump away dump away i retract my statement um, unless, of course, it wasn't for a whole bag of chips, in which case it was still reckless. We're lying in bed at night the other night, and and I'm reading, she's reading, and she just looks over and says, "Can you can you believe that a whole bag?" And this was like two days after her chocolate chip cookie recipe rant. Anyway, if you don't know what we're talking about, listen to the previous episode, and you'll have all the details. And it's not worth it. It's don't really to don't it. worth it. No, it, it's it's really not worth it's it. Terrible. No, yeah. It's, Frankly, I'm surprised you're listening to this episode, but <laughs> but we do appreciate it. Also, thanks to uh, Medium and Authority Magazine. They did a really nice article Ooh, on us. That was great. Right? They called us podcast stars. I don't understand that. What, were they drunk when they, when they wrote that? And if that's the case, we need to buy liquor and send it to more journalists. <laughs> we love you guys. Thanks for hanging out with us. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful, beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at facebook.com slash box of oddities podcast on twitter at box of oddities and instagram at box of oddities podcast copyright 2021 all rights reserved my name is greg jackson i'm a historian professor and creator of history that doesn't suck a podcast that provides a complete overview of u.s history through storytelling yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find history that doesn't suck wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.